Hello, this is John Coleshaw speaking against a lot of background noise which represents a nebulous area of a star-forming region. You are listening to the Jodcast, an astronomy podcast from Manchester University. You have chosen wisely. The Jodcast, comets or spaceships, with Monique Henson, Jack Radcliffe and Ian Harrison. The Jodcast, NAM 2015 Retrospective. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Monique and I'm with Jack and Ian. Hello. Hi. In the show this time, we cast our ears back to the National Astronomy Meeting, or NAM, in July 2015. We welcome back a couple of familiar faces with interviews with the Galaxy Zoo team and Dr. Mac Taylor, as well as a few new ones with Dr. Caroline Vilferth, Dr. Daniel Brown, Lars Minerson, Professor Joe Dunkley and Professor Pedro Ferreira. So before we actually get into our plethora of interviews, um, Ian, could you tell us a little bit more about what NAM actually is? Yes, so NAM is the Royal Astronomical Society's National Astronomy Meeting, uh, as you introduced it beforehand. It's kind of an annual get-together for UK astronomers. Um, We have in the past also held it jointly with the German equivalent, which was very interesting a few years ago. But it's, like I say, an annual event where there is a a big focus on early career scientists, PhD students and postdocs um, getting together giving talks about their work and um, there's a lot of press releases which usually get done around it as well and yeah last year it was in Clandidno in North Wales which was probably actually surprisingly nice I, well no, the weather I mean, was pretty good yeah, yeah it was nice got yeah. to sit on the beach for, yeah, <laughs> in between some one of the sessions yeah. yeah I should say in some of the interviews coming up you're going to hear me and Jack butchering the word Clandidno so I apologize for that now <laughs> because I think as the week got on my pronunciation got better but it was pretty poor for most of it great so our first interview today will be with the Galaxy Zoo team um, and Monique did this interview, so a little introduction. Galaxy Zoo is a citizen science project, and it aims to use the public to do science projects. And so this is what the team is going to talk to you about now. Hi, it's Monique, um, back at the National Astronomy Meeting, and this time I'm talking to some of the members of the Galaxy Zoo science team, if you'd like to introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Brooke Simmons. I'm a postdoc at the University of Oxford. I work on uh, galaxy evolution and black holes in, in galaxies. Hi, I'm Becky Smethers. I'm a PhD student at the University of Oxford and I work on the star formation history of galaxies. Hi, I'm Tom Melvin. I uh, just finished my PhD at the University of Portsmouth and I work on bars and disc galaxies. Well, it's great to have all of you here. Um, so could we start off by giving just an overview of what Galaxy Zoo is, like a brief idea of what the project's like for those of our listeners who've not heard about it before? Sure. Well, if you haven't heard of Galaxy Zoo, you can go and find out about it yourself by going to galaxyzoo.org. Um, it is a, a website where we ask the public for help with classifying galaxies. Uh, it turns out that a lot of the really important questions about the physics of galaxies can be answered by just uh, simple questions about their shapes, like do you see a spiral shape or do you see a rectangular-shaped bar inside of a round galaxy, for example. Uh, and we have thus far enlisted the help of over 300,000 members of the public on Galaxy Zoo alone and over 1.3 million people on all of the other projects we have uh, and done really amazing science you can't do any other way. That's great to hear. So um, how has Galaxy Zoo helped you individually in your own research? So with with my research, looking at bars, it's kind of high redshift sort of galaxies and um, to do that with a computer is quite difficult and there are a lot of problems but with the Galaxy Zoo classifications it was much easier and you get some very nice images that come out and 
it's just a very solid way of looking at how these bars have changed and how you can measure them without having to do so much computational work that you'd have to do any other way. So it's made my PhD easier in that respect that I haven't had to do all that computational work, that side of it. So that's kind of my personal use of Galaxy Zoo data. Um, for me, the really cool thing about Galaxy Zoo is that you get about 40 plus people to look at every single image of a galaxy. So you get really cool statistics on how much people agree about the classification of a galaxy. So how many people agree that it's got a bar in there or how many people agree that it is a disc shape. And that allows you to do really cool things uh, where you use the entire catalogue. So instead of splitting now your galaxies into these things are definitely disky or spiral and these things are definitely sort of the strange blobs that we see, you get to use this whole range of statistics and say, actually, these ones in the middle are kind of half and half. And that really helps you understand how galaxies evolve from being nice spiral shapes to these end up being these weird blob shapes at the end. So it's given you a bit of information about how they're not just in rigid categories, as we might have previously thought. Exactly, yeah. I mean, previously a lot of people had done it as sort of very much bimodal populations, and this has really given us the chance to utilise statistics to be able to say, actually, there's this wide range of morphologies and therefore a wide range of different evolution uh, paths they can take. Um, and Brooke? Well, I actually use Galaxy Zoo in many ways, but one of the key ways is I look for rare objects. And these are things where we might have a million galaxies and maybe 30 or 40 of them are the kind that I need. And they're very important objects because they allow us to study certain kinds of physics. Um, in particular, the kind that I study are pure disk galaxies that have never had any signs of any kind of merger. And there's no signatures of that that have built up in the galaxy over time. Um, and that's a pretty rare track in galaxy evolution, but it's really important because it teaches us about the sort of fundamental underlying things that happen without galaxy collisions, um, which all galaxies would go through at some time or another. And if you use a computer to try to pick those out, you can do pretty well, but it's a bit noisy and you're a little bit contaminated, and that can really wreck your statistics when you're dealing with small numbers. Uh, but the visual classifications that people give us are really accurate. And as Becky said, when you have so many people giving us so many answers, you can be pretty sure uh, of the answer. So Galaxy Zoo is really the only way to do this kind of work. And so what kind of signatures are you looking for that tell you when something's been through a merger or, or hasn't been through a merger? Well, uh, most galaxies, we think when they form, they have pretty ordered motions. Um, they, they collapse into rotating disks and they're quite thin and you can pick those out pretty easily. Um, if a galaxy has some kind of a collision or interaction or merger, um, some of that ordered, uh, those, those stars that are in ordered motions get thrown up into more chaotic orbits and it, it becomes what's known as a central bulge, um, which is like a little kind of like the yolk of the fried egg, if you will, in a spiral galaxy. Um, so if a galaxy has a bulge, um, what we call a classical bulge, it pretty much has to have had a merger um, because we think that, that those bulges are the inevitable result of mergers. And so then turning that on its head, if you find galaxies that have no sign of that whatsoever, then it can't have had those processes. So the bulge is really the clear sign of a merger. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think earlier on this week there was a talk about classifying galaxies using computers and like with a new algorithm and new techniques. Do you think there, well, do you think it's possible we'll get to a point where machines are as good as or better than people or are we even reaching that point now? I think we'll get to a point where machines do the easy task for you. So the, the things that people kind of get not bored of classifying, but it's really easy to do where you're going through and you're going, yeah, that's definitely a disc. Yeah, that's definitely a, a round thing. Um, and then you get to the point where you say, oh, what's that? 
you know, that, this is weird, this is rare, this is really interesting. And the computers really struggle with that. So it's great that they're developing these algorithms that are really going to help us out if we're getting huge numbers of galaxy images in the future, you know, to the sort of billions rather than millions with these new telescopes we're building, that computers will be able to whittle down those numbers so that the public can then come on and classify the really cool stuff that's left over at the end. There's a survey coming online soon that's called the Large Synoptic Sky uh, Telescope, I suppose. Yeah, anyway, um, that, uh, sorry, it's LSST. And uh, that's going to have somewhere in the realm of a billion galaxies. And uh, even if the machines are 99% accurate, in uh, classifying those. So that still leaves 1% of galaxies that we don't know the, the shapes of. And those 1% might contain really interesting things. And 1% of a billion is still a million objects, mm-hmm. right? So I don't think any of us are going to be out of a job anytime soon. <laughs> um, and in fact, we really need the machine classifiers to, to improve. So we're all really pleased about this result. Um, so it sounds like they're kind of complementary as well, I guess, two different approaches. So you mentioned LSST is one of the upcoming surveys. Where do you, what do you see as the next big things that Galaxy Zoo is going to work on or look at? I think we're certainly planning to incorporate many other new surveys before LSST comes online. Um, one of the things I'm really excited about is... Um, practicing for for the era of LSST and other big surveys, um, which are going to take repeated images of the sky. And so we'll get kind of a, a film of, of the sky every night and be able to see things that are changing. Um, and what I'd really like to be able to do is, is to have uh, telescope images come that night to be classified by the public um, and tell us what's interesting going on that day. Um, and then we can go and follow that up. And this kind of live feedback, which would also probably involve some machine classification, uh, would be really important to to helping us discover new things That b- because LSST is, is a way of seeing the sky that we've never really seen before. It's amazing that you could get the classification that quickly, really. I think it's bef- prior to Galaxy Zoo, no one would have thought it was possible. Yeah. Um, we tried it recently with a project that we did with BBC Stargazing Live um, with Snapshot Supernova, it was called. We were looking for supernova uh, in recent images compared to library images. And we had data coming off a telescope in Australia after their nights observing, being classified by the British public in the evening, sort of GMT time. And then if they found any candidate supernova they would be followed up by a telescope in Chile to confirm whether it was a supernova or not then again like sort of later that night when the sun set in Chile so it really was sort of live and amazing it really captured the British public's sort of uh, hearts basically. No that's a really quick turnaround um, so kind of like on you mentioned that that really captured the British public's hearts so what kind of impact do you feel that like Galaxy Zoo's had in terms of outreach and getting people interested and engaged with science? So for outreach, it's really interesting because you can kind of go with your Galaxy Zoo and you can go to kids that are around five or six years old and just get them used to looking at galaxies for the first time and telling them bits about galaxies. And it's very simple because it is just shapes. But then it stretches out. I've used it as far as sort of A-level students and undergrad students because you can start getting into a bit more details about the kinematics of the galaxies and why you form things like spiral arms and bars. But then even when you go to larger things like stargazing live, you can have a screen up with all these galaxies and you can get people to start to classify things and you get them involved and they get very interested and you mention other things in the Zooniverse as well. And so it just lets people start to actually interact with a science thing where they're actually helping us with the results rather than maybe watching it on TV and going, well, this is interesting, but how can I help with this? Yeah, you often find with outreach that you, you go into a school or, you know, you talk to the public and you talk to them about what you do and, and, and how you do it and that you're doing really cool science and they enjoy that. But the coolest thing for them is to then 
contribute to that science you know feel like they're doing something towards it themselves and it really gives people a boost if they've done science as a degree and then they've gone on to do you know say work in the city they feel like they can still continue doing that science or if they've never thought science was for them before because they thought it was too hard and then they've realized that they can help out in this really simple way they, they're really pleased we're uh, we're coming up on Galaxy Zoo's eighth anniversary. It's actually in a couple of days, and um, so we've we've had a a whole generation of kids in school who have essentially gone through their whole school career knowing about Galaxy Zoo or close to their whole whole career. And um, in fact, we just found out this year um, in our department when our PhD students were interviewing our candidates um, that I think all of them, maybe all of them save one, had done Galaxy Zoo and remembered Galaxy Zoo and had mentioned it when when they were interviewing. Like, oh, I did that and it really helped me and it, it inspired me and made me feel like maybe science was a good thing. I really like astronomy and, and so I, I'm hoping that we'll just see that more and more the, the longer Galaxy Zoo continues. That's fantastic to see it follow all the way through. I'd never even thought about that. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, and it would be great to have you on in the future if you're ever in Manchester or I see you again. So, great, thank you. Thanks very much, guys. Cheers, thank you. Um, and if you're interested in taking part in Galaxy Zoo, I think you can find the website. There's also an app as well for both Android and iPhone. Yeah. Um, so have a go. Thanks, Monique, for that interview. Galaxy Zoo has a new project. If you've seen Stargazing Live, then there was a new pulsar hunt, as it was called. So it was getting the mm-hmm. public to search for new pulsars, which could be distinguished from radio frequency interference, which is by your mobile phones or by any sort of civilization nearby. Mm-hmm. So I really <laughs> so. love that aspect with Galaxy Zoo, where a lot of it is somebody mentioned in that interview about the computer vision aspect to it. And I think it's really cool how for all the computing power we can draw and all the smart algorithms we can design, nothing is absolutely anywhere near as good as just a person looking at some data. Just so much head start that brains have on classifying objects visually um, that computers can't do. And this is exactly the principle Galaxy Zoo works on. And I think it's impressive just when once you get a lot of people on a problem, how much quicker you get it done. Like that, I mean, that sounds kind of obvious, but I know with the Pulsar Hunters thing, they had something that I, I was talking to one of them, they were saying they had um, enough data that it probably would have taken a PhD student most of their PhD to do it. And then they ran out of data for people to work on. Um, on in the Pulsar Hunters project within like one night or two nights or something like that, which is just yeah. incredible. They actually had to shut it early. <laughs> um, yeah, it just yeah. shows the the power of it as well, mm-hmm. because in one of the previous stargazing when they had the gravitational lenses, they're, mm. they're very rare and difficult to find in all the vast amounts of optical data you, you have, and they managed to find two mm-hmm. in a night just by having hundreds of thousands of people looking at a few images. So the public does all the Pulsar people's work for them, but they still don't come to the public. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So, um, on to our next interview. This time, Jack speaks to Dr. Carolyn Vilforth about quasar host galaxies. Okay, I'm here with Carolyn Vilforth at the University of St. Andrews. Hi, Carolyn. Hello. Um, So, could you tell us a little bit about your research and... Um, So I work on quasar host galaxies. So quasars are supermassive black holes in the centres of galaxies. Um, And in most galaxies, those supermassive black holes are what we call quiescent, so they're not doing much, like, for example, in the center of the Milky Way. But in some galaxies, they're accreting gas. So we have gas that forms uh, an accretion disk around the black hole, and it heats up and radiates very, very brightly. So, and often those quasars can be more luminous than, than the entire galaxy. And I study how this happens. So I want to know why do some black holes become active and others stay quiescent. 
And so um, what effect does this have in determining the way that we perceive the universe? Um, so I care about this just because I love quasars. <laughs> but, but it's also very important. So it has been found that um, there are black holes in basically all galaxies. And not only are there black holes in all galaxies, they also, their masses correlate with the masses of the host galaxies. So a more massive galaxy will have a more massive black hole. And what this basically tells you is that those black holes are not just frequencies that were placed in the centers of the galaxies, but that they evolve with the galaxies. So really, these these quasars are tied in quite tightly with with galaxy evolution in general. And so, what do you use to try and uh, detect this or quantify this? As uh, so I've been working a lot on imaging, so what I've been doing for a lot of my research um, is look at images of quasars um, and then try to see if in the host galaxies we see signs of recent disturbance. Because uh, while we think of black holes as monsters that just gobble up everything in their surroundings, it's actually surprisingly hard to feed them because galaxies are quite stable on average. And if you want to have a quasar active for a long amount of, uh, for, for a long time, you will have to push a lot of gas to the center of the galaxy. And this is actually incredibly hard. Um, so theoreticians have suspected for a while that, for example, if you have collisions of galaxies, that would disrupt the galaxy enough that a lot of gas falls to the center and then would feed an Aegean uh, quasar phase. And what I've been doing is look at images of bright quasars, which is quite difficult because, like I said, the outside in the galaxy, so you have to get the point source off. Um, and then you're trying to see if there's some signs of disturbance that would imply that maybe there was a galaxy interaction in the recent past. And sadly enough, what I've been finding is that there is not a lot of science of that, which, which is quite puzzling. Hmm. Um, so is there any anything that could explain this? Well, I think there's a, there's a few things which could explain it. First of all, if we look at images of galaxies, uh, I said, well, we look for signs of disturbance, but those will fade rather rapidly. So if you look at pictures of, of collisions of galaxies first, they will look incredibly disturbed. But already after... 500 million years, which is a short amount of time for astronomers, <laughs> they, they start to look quite normal. So, so if it would happen that we have these collisions of galaxies in the gas coast to the center, and then it takes a very, very long time for it to finally reach the black hole and feed this quasar phase, then we could still um, explain these observations. Or it could also be that there's just a lot of other processes that lead to, to a quasar phase. Thanks for that, Jack. Um, so one of the interesting points I thought there was um, when she talked about the relationship between the massive black hole and its host galaxy. And I thought that was quite interesting because we had a talk from Francesco Shankar um, mm -hmm. the other week who came in. He was saying that there's two relations that are, have kind of been fairly well studied. So the relationship between a black hole and the stellar mass of a galaxy, but also the relationship between the black hole and the velocity of the objects in the galaxy and whether or not those are actually real relations. And I, th I thought that was quite an interesting topic. Yeah, so he he talks about this kind of relation being an effect of an uh, observational bias. Mm -hmm. So essentially our telescopes today cannot detect certain galaxies because they're not sensitive enough or they, they don't have the angular resolution to, to be able to resolve the galaxies. And so this relation can basically be forced and, mm -hmm. and he contests this and tries to simulate um, what it would be like without the bias and with the bias and see if you can get the relation back. 
probably should say that we still don't really know the definite answer to this either so this is kind of uh, one of the ideas he's worked on extensively but i think it's still a little bit controversial yeah, it's contested, in that community contested yeah. contested is the right word <laughs> yeah. it's been it, it's been a very uh, well accepted uh, relationship for a reasonable amount of time i think but mm-hmm. then as you say there are many things where these selection biases come into play and are incredibly important to remember mm-hmm. and that kind of and i think in this one it's probably stuck because it's kind of intuition you'd expect mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The larger the galaxy, the bigger the black hole would be in the centre, and that mm-hmm. would evolve with each other. Might not be true. Yes, so I guess we'll, I guess hopefully we'll get we'll find out some more information as time goes on. Absence of proof is not proof of absence, etc. Mm-hmm. etc. Okay, so next we have both Monique and Jack talking to Professor Pedro Freira from Oxford University, talking about general relativity and its relationship to cosmology. I'm here today with Pedro Ferreira from Oxford University, um, and Jack's here too. Um, so you just gave a great plenary on general relativity. We wondered if you'd just be able to tell us a little bit about what you do and give us a brief overview of general relativity. Um, I'm, I'm a cosmologist at the University of Oxford, and I'm very interested in using cosmology and cosmological data to learn about general relativity on the size of the universe, on the scale of the universe. In some sense, I think it's possible to use measurements of the positions of galaxies or how distant galaxies are imaged or or distorted by intervening space-time to constrain general relativity and to see if general relativity is actually correct on large scales. So for the uh, layman, how would you try to explain general general relativity to them? It's a theory um, that Einstein came up with in 1915 to try and supplant or encompass Newtonian's theory of gravity. And the idea is that you, instead of talking about a force, you know, the one over R squared force that you've all learnt, you basically say that space-time has a life of its own. And if you put stuff in space-time, it bends space-time. And if something moves through space-time, it feels the bends in space-time. So gravity is really this illusion. What you actually have is this dance between space-time and stuff. So what do you think is going to be the next big step in general relativity? Like, What's the next big thing that we're going to discover? I think the next big thing well, the two next big things over the next couple of years are the Event Horizon Telescope. It's this consortium of telescope in the US. And they are going to image the black hole Sagittarius A-star at the centre of our galaxy. We're going to see a black hole for the first time. And that's kind of unique. I know we've seen it in Interstellar, but, you know, this is the first time we see it for real. The other big thing is an experiment called Advanced LIGO, which will detect gravitational waves of black holes and neutron stars falling into each other as they orbit, 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 lose gravitational radiation and merge. And what do you mean when you say see a black hole? Because I think quite often when we say to people we're going to image a black hole, they say, well, surely you can't see a black hole. So what do you actually mean by that? That's a really good question. Black holes are black and they're very small. So what I mean by seeing is that you will be able to see this shroud of light what's known as the accretion disk around the black hole surrounding it and you'll see a shadow and that shadow will be the blackness of the black hole so thank you for that um the two of you uh (laughs) i enjoyed how uh prescient pedro was there in his prediction of the detection of gravitational waves by ligo which of course has actually happened since that interview was done um, you should have placed some kind of bet on it, maybe. Yeah, that's true. I think imaging the imaging a black hole is still a little way away, though. It's yeah, just the other thing was, he's predicted. There was the first paper last year from the Event Horizon Telescope. Really? Did they? Which came that? out to measure the so they resolved the magnetic fields around Sagittarius A star, and so with the Event Horizon Telescope, it's millimeter wavelengths mm-hmm. and uses ALMA 
and right, which okay. is the Atacama Large Millimeter Array and SMT, which is Submillimeter Telescope, and they link them all up. And you think, oh, it's great, we'll, we'll be able to image a black hole, and it, it's aiming to image two black holes, so it's Sagittarius A star and M87. And M87 is, is an extragalactic black hole. M87 sounds yeah. like a name of a galaxy. Yeah. Um, and it's got a much larger black hole, so we should be able to just about resolve it with the full event horizon telescope. Very cool. Not only our black holes, but other people's black holes as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Great. <laughs> 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 okay, on to the next one. Okay, so next we've got one of our stalwarts of Jogcast interviews, which is Dr. Matt Taylor. So he's going to talk a little bit about Rosetta and something a little bit more interesting, which is related to our title. Uh, hi there, I'm Jack, and I'm with Monique back at NAM 2015, uh, and we're back here with Matt Taylor. And if you remember, in April, Matt was uh, collared by the Jogcast to give an update on Rosetta. And so, hi, Matt. Hello. <laughs> good, good to talk to you again. Uh, is there any update for the reader on uh, Rosetta? For, there's always an update with Rosetta. Uh, I can't think what's happened since. Well, if it was in April, it was shortly after we were experiencing issues with flying close to the comet. So we have completely thrown out our planned schedule. So we changed everything, the way that we were flying the mission, effectively. Uh, whereas we were planning long-term in four-month chunks and saying we'll do this flyby in August and then we'll do this on that week, we've gone to trying to get as close to the comet as possible. That's it. That's the only goal is to fly and fly in certain regions to see how we're interacting with the comet. So that's what's happened in, in, in that time, uh, as well as, you know, the, the lander peeping up in, uh, in June time period to say I'm awake. Has there been any other information from the lander? Um, unfortunately, not. I mean, we, we were having information when, when it first woke up, then we, we were having a number of passes where it was communicating with us, but it was very sporadic. We didn't get a very stable link, and that was a problem, mainly driven, I think, by our distance, but also that the lander's not in a great orientation, as we knew from November. But in November, we were getting reasonable links, but that was when we were at 30 kilometers. Now, well, at that point, we were over 200 when we first heard from it. Now we're down to 150 kilometers from the surface, and now we're not hearing anything. So that's the concern at the moment as to why that's the case. There are a number of reasons why that could be the case. I think somebody quoted me yesterday saying it was very bad news because it's broken. It could be that it's broken, but there are a number of other reasons. It could just be the the geometries that we're flying now, which may be similar but not exactly the same as the ones when we did get contact. Possibly it's moved as well. We just don't know, and that's the thing. To be honest with you, without being able to fly that close to really see and like really go right, we can see it, so we can we know where it is. It's oriented in the same way, and we're still not communicating. That's the only way we'll be able to tell what's wrong with it, but we can't. We're too far away at the moment, so we're just piecing things together. So you mentioned that you can't get too close to the comet right now. So what, what are the reasons behind that? It's mainly driven by the star trackers. So basically we have these star tracker devices that um, have to spot a certain amount of stars to, to accurately point the spacecraft. So they're our na main navigation in terms of pointing. And as soon as they start getting confused, we have a problem with accurate pointing. And then you get to the situation which we did in March where the spacecraft couldn't point accurately because it lost star trackers and it starts to drift slightly. And then we were losing contact to the high-gain antenna with the Earth. So that's a problem. Yeah. And then it goes into another... Well, we have safe modes, which are safe by definition. Like New, New Horizons had a safe mode. They're called safe modes for a reason. If you put the spacecraft in a situation where it can't point properly, the Star Trackers can't see, 
you go in what they call, or what we call the survival mode, where it tries to start scanning for the Earth with the high gain antenna, and you really don't want to put it, you've basically lost the spacecraft like in deep space. Scenario. So, it, and, and you don't, it can do that. It's designed to do that, but we've never tested it. It's one of these, it's basically an emergency situation. So we try to avoid putting it in that situation. So now we're stepping back from the comet. So we don't have as much dust around and noise on the star tracker. So we still can use the star trackers. So that's the, the trade-off. Distance versus safety, as it were. And so in the next few months, uh, what's the plans for towards the end of the mission with Rosetta? Well, I mean, we're, we're, we're about to approach perihelion. We're still doing, we're, we're probing different regions in terms of uh, trajectories to say, well, we're in Terminator orbit at the moment. Not actually in orbit, we're flying arcs in the Terminator so that, you know, the, the, the plane between the sunlit side and the dark side. We're looking to see whether we should go a little bit on the night side to see if that means we can get closer because we know on the day side, so off of Terminator on the day side, we have to go further away. It's just, it, so this is how we're doing. It's kind of like, if we go here, then this is how we can, we, we can get closer or further away. We, we're seeing the reaction of the star trackers to the environment. We're also studying what the star trackers are seeing. So we've repointed the spacecraft to compare the camera with the star tracker to really say, well, why are we seeing this with the camera and the star trackers are seeing this to just get us a better feel for how to fly around the comet. And that'll mean we'll get a better idea for maybe planning different things in the future. So, well, maybe we'll do this. We will be flying an excursion in October time. So we go hundreds of kilometers away from the comet, up to 1,000, maybe 1,500, because we're trying to find one of the plasma boundaries. So I'm trying to see if we can cross maybe a bow shock. So that's one thing we'll do in October for definite. But then we'll come back and fly particular, you know, again, get close, maybe fly slightly different trajectories. It's all based on what we're learning now by trying different things and studying the, because it's all on the Star Tracker at the moment. It's really saying, what can we do that doesn't get us into a bad situation or risk the spacecraft? What are the capabilities? And it, it's it's something we didn't envisage to be doing. To be honest with you, when we were doing some of the science operations planning last year, we were looking at what we were worried about not detecting any dust at all with a dust detector. So, you know, it's one of these things that you can only preempt too many things, to so, so many things when you're doing something as exploratory as we have done. So you can prepare as much as you can, but then sometimes that's part of the exploration is that it's not what you thought it would be. It's all new territory, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I describe it as uh, the when I was young, there used to be a problem with British Rail that they had the wrong kind of leaves on the rail. So they had to it, during <laughs> autumn there were leaves on the rail, but they had the wrong kind of leaves, which meant that it was the, some of the trains couldn't move. And so maybe this is the wrong kind of dust. We were expecting dust, but this dust is more problematic than other dust. Okay. So you mentioned in your talk that it's now been extended to twenty September twenty sixteen. Yes. So is that kind of new timeline it meant that there's more avenues for science that you can explore i think once you've moved past a spacecraft nominal mission we can be more daring so maybe mm. then we start saying well it's worth taking the risk to do this because we've done you know if we get to the end of the nominal mission in december this year we would have gained a lot of knowledge on how to fly the spacecraft and done a lot of science so maybe we'll change certain things certainly by 2016 hopefully again this is another ongoing discussion how long that cloud of dust will hang around it's not particularly symmetrical around perihelion, it may not simply evaporate. So we won't have the same approach in terms of dust environment as we did when we came towards perihelion. All these things we, we've got to consider. But definitely, once we get towards August, September time, we know that we'll be able to get closer and closer to the comet. So that's the key thing there for me is this spiral in is very scientifically interesting because we can't get that close at perihelion now. 
We're at 150 at Terminator now. Um, by the end of this week, I think we'll get that close. Maybe we'll step down another five kilometers, but to be able to get very, very close will get us a taste of some of the really near surface coma that is very important and was one of the key measurements we wanted to make. And so the extension allows us to do some of that stuff that we, we can't do at the moment because we're so far away from the comet. There's still great stuff that we're doing. We're actually discovering things that we didn't, again, the explorative nature of the mission is that it's the surprise of the unexpected. So that, that's what it's all about. Otherwise, somebody would have done this already. Hmm. It's all new. Um, so one of the things you touched upon very briefly in your talk, which I found quite interesting, was what this mission offers for ground-based observations of comets in the future. Would you be able to talk a little bit more about yeah, that? Yeah, actually, that's a key thing about the extension as well, because the extension period, I think from around November this year through March, April, is the best visibility of the comet from the ground. Uh, and again, you're on the edge of my knowledge from a ground-based astronomy point of view. But that, that was one of the key things, that we would stretch into the best viewing of the comet from the ground. And this is the, something yeah, I didn't highlight at all, really, is the key thing with having Rosetta alongside the comet for that long is that you've got all of these eyes trained on it from near Earth, so Hubble and other, other instruments are looking at it, and the ground-based instruments, that you can maybe, for want of a better word, calibrate all of the measurements of from the ground with those in-situ measurements. And the fact that you're seeing some of this stuff, like the Alice measurements of how some of the, the parent molecules are breaking up at very close to the comet to then put that into context of what you're measuring from the ground and what you're measuring from near earth as well above the atmosphere so getting rid of some of that those problems but yeah so you can kind of benchmark this comet with with the ground based and then maybe well my at least my consideration is you can then apply that to all the other observations that we made with ground based so it's that it's that calibration of your ground based measurements which i think is very very important and allows even more people to interact with the mission and this comet so moving on with that we saw the giant media furore around rosetta and that is there any way that our uh, for example amateur astronomers listening to this podcast could get involved with rosetta and yes uh, help uh, you it guys was a out? poor well, i wouldn't say a poor advert but i can't give you the specific link but the best thing to do is if you google i think it's rosetta ground based you'll get there's a link on the jpl website who's basically the jpl project are the we have a u.s component so my equal on, on the u.s side is claudia alexander she's the project scientist for the US project so she looks at the science of the US instruments but she's also helped the amateur community so Padma runs this effort and uh, so if you go via that website once you've googled it there's also the Rosetta campaign which is the pro side that that's how you get in Colin Snodgrass at OU is the best person to, to contact uh, on all of the ground-based activities because for me he's the go-to guy for all the ground based from Rosetta mm-hmm. um, but that, that's where you get into it and uh, it's quite a lively group of people well it'd be great to hear from any of our listeners who have been involved so far so get in touch if you have been so something you mentioned kind of in a light-hearted thing during your talk was about there's a lot of conspiracy <laughs> theories about rosetta and i just wondered do you have a particular favorite theory um there are quite a few i was trying to get another one because there's what there was one video that had a squid uh, swimming across the surface of the comet there's a spaceship <laughs> one i like this the one I was showing about how the, it, there's a basically a whole video of somebody from the ESA had written this guy a letter because they were so adamant they needed this information to get out to the public that ESA were covering everything up. The the comet's actually a spacecraft and you can see these buildings, etc. But there's some of the comments that you have where surely a space agency wouldn't pay 1.3 billion euros just to go to a comet. And you think, well, actually, yeah, that's that's what's happened. <laughs> it's not just, yeah, and also, yeah, just to, just to hide the fact that we're actually doing something else. It's uh, 
science costs money and yeah that's actually cheap compared to some of the things you think we could have done compared to other projects yeah well i mean yeah yeah and compared to just building a road for instance it's mm-hmm. uh it's it's pretty good value for money i think and you're landing on a comet Sorry. exactly yeah, <laughs> just, yeah. Okay. three times yeah. <laughs> well, four uh if we count september yeah mm-hmm. uh yeah i mean i know some people are very uh averse to talking about these conspiracy theories but mm-hmm. As I said, I think it means that we've touched so many people that they feel that they should engage that much. Uh, but, you know, so I look, it's fun, and that's why I talk about it. Well, at least you're still capturing some people's imagination. It's, uh, yes, yeah. So that's what happens, as we saw with some of the press releases from this meeting as well. So yeah. you're certainly capturing people's imagination. Mm-hmm. No? Well, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. And, and you're welcome back anytime. Yeah, oh, well, catch me anytime. Thank you. <laughs> Got nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Cheers. Okay, thanks for that, Monique, for the help. It's always nice to have Matt back on the Jodcast. If you want to catch up with some of his other interviews, he also spoke to us in February 2016 for Stargazing Live, and also a little while ago for our April Extra episode in 2015. I should mention a couple of things in that interview are a little bit out of date now, given that it was almost a year ago. So the Rosetta Ground-based project is actually finished in December 2015, but they do have some information on their results and stuff on their website, so it's definitely worth checking out, and we'll put that in the show notes. So this brings us to our fifth interview today, which is where Jack speaks to Professor Joe Dunkley about the cosmic microwave background. Hi, it's Jack here at NAM 2015. I'm here with Joe Dunkley, the University of Oxford. Hi, Joe. Hi. (laughs) Could you tell us a little bit more about your research and uh, kind of a little summary on your excellent plenary talk that we just heard at NAM? Sure, yeah. So I study the cosmic microwave background, which is um, it's actually the earliest picture we have of the universe. It's like a snapshot of what it looked like when it was only 400,000 years old. And it's because it's sort of the earliest time we can see, it provides us with all sorts of information about the Big Bang and about what the universe is made of. Um, and I was talking about this. It was discovered actually 50 years ago, just this year. So back in 1965. So my talk was about its discovery and, and the science that we've managed to get from it. So how important, in your opinion, has the CMB in forwarding uh, cosmology and astronomy towards this day since it was first discovered? I think it's been it's it's played a really central role. So just its discovery um, was enormous evidence for the Big Bang itself. Before that, people a lot of people believed in or thought that a different model things such as the steady state model of the universe where there wasn't a big bang um could have been true mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the discovery of the cmb just threw that out the window um it said it said that the universe had to begin as a hot big bang but now it's also telling us what the universe is made of we've discovered that you know 95% of it's in invisible matter that we don't understand. We call it dark matter and dark energy. And we don't understand it yet, but we've measured pretty precisely how much of it there is. Um, and we're able to see the first little, the very beginnings of the formation of cosmic structure, all the things we see in space now, galaxies, stars in galaxies. The, CM, the microwave background that, that I measure, that we measure, lets us see the very beginnings of that. And we can also then trace back and figure out what happened right at the beginning of time to put in features to the universe. Um, so in the future, what are you aiming to try and detect next? We, one of the things we're looking for is um, our ripples in space-time that we think the Big Bang put in. So we think when the universe began expanding, um, 
the the energetic expansion actually imprinted these ripples to space time itself um and we're looking for them <laughs> we and and if we can if we can find them which we might do in the next few years um we it would tell us what happens right at the beginning of time and it would tell us sort of the how energetic uh the initial you know growth of the universe was um and so we're using telescopes um in chile in the south pole to look for this very very faint signal um of you know space-time ripples okay thank you very much joe and thanks for the excellent talk again thanks for that jack so that was a nice little overview of the CMB and how it's been so useful to astronomy. And um... yeah, I think I think it's perhaps not easy to forget, but easy not to emphasise enough just how important the CMB is for cosmology. I mean, the vast majority of our precision on what we know about the universe really does come from it, at least because it's probably kind of the easiest thing to do. I mean, it's very difficult, obviously, but compared to very, very messy things like galaxy formation, all of the physics which is involved in the CMB is comparatively easy to do. Once, once you get rid of the Milky Way in front of it, it's it's okay. Yeah. All the foregrounds. Yeah. But you've only easy. got one galaxy to deal with, yeah. rather than all the galaxies. <laughs> <laughs> and all the history of those galaxies mm-hmm. as well, sometimes. Yeah, it's almost surprising how well the physics of the CMB is understood. If you compare it to kind of the physics of galaxies and stuff, it's, it's much more well understood. Um, and one of the things I quite often say is that we kind of know more about the universe at the point when the CMB was emitted than we know about the universe now. Um, it's much, much better constrained. So next we have Monique interviewing Dr. Daniel Brown about astroarchaeology. So I'm looking forward to hearing about dinosaurs in space, hopefully. <laughs> Steal my line. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm here today with Daniel Brown from Nottingham Trent University. Um, so would you like to start off by telling me a little bit about what you do? Well, I'm a a professional astronomer and I teach astronomy at Nottingham Trent University to our students. I also look after the on-site observatory that's there as well. And uh, as part of teaching astronomy, I also do a little bit of research and uh, I'm born and bred theoretical astronomer. So I really do uh, modeling, stellar evolution, looking at how stars rotate. But on the side, I also do research in archaeoastronomy. So that's linking archaeology and astronomy together to try to understand how peoples of modern time, past, present, um, understood what's happening in the sky and embowed the sky with certain meanings as well. So how did you end up kind of, so if going from a really theoretical part of ash, ash, astronomy um, in stellar evolution, I mean, the, getting into something which I imagine is quite practical in archaeoastronomy, how did you end up moving between those? So what happened is that actually uh, a venue like this, being a a young researcher in Germany, I got into archaeoastronomy. So one of the first posters that I presented in astronomy was on archaeoastronomy. So um, in my uh, sort of, in Germany, the second to third year, so fourth, fifth, sixth semester, I got involved in a project that was building a uh, modern-day Stonehenge and archaeoastronomy-themed park on a uh, a rejuvenated slack heap, and that was building a a gigantic sundial and a a big display to illustrate how stars move in the sky. And that got me into looking at archaeoastronomy and some of the researchers 
at our institute was inv were involved in in archaeoastronomy. So that's how I started to develop interest. So very much like the crowd you would find here. So young researchers, ones that are just graduated, PhD students that are presenting their work. That's the kind of audience and atmosphere that I was in when I was uh, getting involved in that. And a lot is also because I'm quite interested or was always interested in um, uh, astronomy when I was um, in school already. So I was a quite passionate uh, amateur astronomer. So that brought my kind of practical instincts there as well. So very much why I found it very, very important to come to this kind of venue because I, I really felt it's something important to continue the presence of arc astronomy or cultural astronomy as some people call it as well in, in this venue and make sure that astronomers um, when they're doing their degree are well aware of these kinds of um, aspects of the discipline as well. Okay, that's great to hear. So what would you be able to tell us um, and our listeners a little bit about a recent archaeoastronomy pro project you might have worked on or something you've contributed to to give kind of a flavour of what kind of work goes on in that field? Well, at the moment, I've been involved in um, two things, one of which is uh, looking at the heritage of the night sky, where I've been involved in the dark sky project in the Peak District. So we've been looking at how uh, light pollution can actually hinder seeing um, the beauty of the night sky. And therefore, if you think on our heritage, we're thinking about monuments, we're thinking about landscape features, but that all extends into what we call skyscape, what's visible above. And if we include light pollution, we're eradicating what was there and uh, what can be seen at these sites. So in a way, it's as if you would run a bulldozer through Stonehenge. That would cause a big outcry. That's what we wanted to foster, this understanding of that the night sky is a piece of our heritage as well. And as soon as we managed to do that kind of outreachy project, we would uh, foster a better understanding and motivation in sort of ground roots from the population to sort of support dark skies. The other one that I was working on was looking at the uh, orientation of a standing stone in the Peak District and Garden's Edge, which is uh, a fantastic site, a very unusual standing stone in this area, very triangular in shape and uh, um, the idea there is that rather it pointing to a specific alignment on the horizon where the sun might set in uh, midwinter or midsummer, it's actually something where the shadows play quite an interesting story in this stone. So the stone is set up so that it at uh, midday, midsummer, um, the sun is highest in the sky and the shadow cast by this stone doesn't appear on the ground at all. It's actually not um, formed so that the shadow seemingly is shorter than what the stone is. It actually, if you would limit the standing stone to only a staff that's at the front edge of it where the sun hits it, that shadow cast by that staff would exactly now be modelled in stone. So the one north-facing side is just being skimmed by the light as it comes in. So in a way, um, what I'm looking at now in the interpretation is that that standing stone is embodying its own shadow. Now you can look at skyscape experience, as I was talking to in this conference as well, as being something where not only the sky or sky meets the horizon, but also the land is playing an important role. You can see how shadows, as part of celestial bodies interacting with the land, can suddenly create these fascinating examples of um, uh, light and darkness change. I mean, there's obviously fantastic examples of that in uh, uh, Mesoamerica, where you've got shadow casts onto the side of stairwells that imitate... Um, uh, snakes running down the pyramids at uh, the equinoxes as well but very impressive but this is small but still a very meaningful thing because shadows in our society have always this double meaning as something that's very uh, essential for us if you lose your shadow you lose part of yourself and you're uh, you're endangering your 
your own safety and sanity. And this is a very powerful expression trying to replace that shadow um, in stone. So it sounds like they're a very powerful part of our local heritage, really. So, so do we know what the like significance of these standing stones are? So I'm not sure I've ever seen one, possibly. Um. It is very difficult. You can't say what is the significance. It's uh, um, not as clear-cut as you would think in, in a, a science like astronomy, that this is how it works and this is not how it works. It's interpreting it from a point of view of who uses this science. So... Um, you will find the New Age community using these sites as uh, powerful sites where they can tap into um, Earth energy fields. You will find people like us researchers to try to tap into the understanding of past uh, people, how they would use and understand the sites and the sky as well. You would think about how um, ecologists would use these sites and see the erosion on the stone and trying to understand how our weather has changed and how acidic rain has impacted it. You would see um, environmental biologists trying to look at the sites to see how growth on the stones, mosses or lichen have changed over time as well. So it's many different users have many different angles on them. So I don't think you can say what the meaning is. And also if there's many different cultural groups that have created standing stones, stone circles and the like. So it's very difficult to have a general meaning. So what we are very much proposing is this case-to-case -case study where you're looking actually at a small sample, still a sample, so you can compare and contrast. But rather than looking at all of the sites across the UK, you would look at very localized area in a valley or in a uh, a very distinct area where you know all the sites roughly built at 2000 BC were built by a similar kind of population with similar ideas and that's where you can then look at um, how they understood the rising, the setting of the sun, uh, depicting certain kind of powerful regions in the on the horizon and aligning their dead towards it and using it for ritual purpose. Not always like we're obsessed with calendars, so it might be calendaric but not in a sense that we they would have used these sites initially to hone a calendar to such a precision. It might be imagining now a society that has no writing, um, that's if you they set up a monument, you might think of a big obelisk we set up uh, to remember the Battle of Waterloo 200 years ago, and put a plaque on the bottom and say what you mean. They have a monument that depicts a site that's regularly used for uh, yearly gatherings of the clans of the um, area. You would have a monument that would clearly state and be functional, and you want to sort of, um, ensure that meaning is encapsulated. They wouldn't have writing or uh, scripture that would be put on there, but you would be able to, through orientation, through work of shadow casting, through alignments, to try to imbue this site with this meaning. So who knows to access these things would see the importance. They would see that if you access it once a year, that it becomes important. In our day society, you can probably compare that. I use that example of the National Memorial Arboretum, where the main monument for uh, remembrance is set up so that one gap representing sort of the opening door towards the afterlife lets light shine on through onto the central monument only on the 11th of the 11th on the 11th hour. And that's a powerful expression of how we see meaning as well. So the meaning of the monument is inherent in its construction itself. So rather than needing some plaque or something, it's all kind of encapsulated in there. Very importantly, encapsulated in the monument, encapsulated in the landscape surrounding it, uh, what people put into a meaning and context in what's around the landscape. Um, areas might be associated to death, power, 
powerful mountains, being able to see hilltop forts of, of residents, and also what is in the sky. So where the heavenly bodies like sun, uh, moon, other planets, or stars might rise or set as well. All of that playing together into what we would call skyscape experience. Oh, that's fascinating. So what kind of tools and equipment do you use in your field? I, I seem to remember earlier you mentioned something about a flower pot and a helium balloon. So um, one of the ways of surveying large sites, some of these stone circles can easily be in the 100 meters diameter. And some of these are large landscapes that you want to survey. So surveying, you can do that by mapping and grid reference, but you want to sometimes have a picture. Uh I personally don't have the funds to fly a, a plane over the site to get the imagery or uh, have good enough connections with the uh, with the White House to get appropriate satellite data. So you would have to opt to drones to fly over it if you have the appropriate clearance and guidance to do so. That's as perfectly fine. That's what our, uh, archaeologists nowadays would be doing. Also doing some outreach projects uh, um, with students, my year 10 project students. What we would do is find out how many helium balloons do you need to float a little uh, spy USB webcam in a plant pot. You need probably a good dozen of them and then we went in to the field went upwind let them float up and you have them on the tether line and release them to let float they go with the wind over the site and when they're reaching the site you've got a now a camera that's easily 50 meters above the site taking images and you wheel it back in and you've got for free you have to pay maybe 20 pounds and b&q for a, um, a helium canister but you've got um, very good aerial views of that site as well. And that helps you to sort of see what's where, alignments, orientations, and uh, a little bit of documentation. Other things you might need in the field are um, a good compass, a clinometer to measure how high certain things are, altitude or elevations. Because what we were talking to is where things rise or set on the horizon. So you need to know directions on the horizons, things due north. But that just gives you what's called an azimuth. And uh, you want to then try to find out what for... Uh, objects in the sky would be associated to that azimuth where they would rise and set. And yes, you can use a perfect one that's sort of your um, zero altitude horizon, what you would see at a beach when you're looking over the sea. But actually, if you're in the mountainous environment, you can see hillsides there, so they elevate the horizon. So, for example, the sun should go up at 8, but no way, you're at the bottom of the valley, you have to wait another two hours till it creeps over the mountains. And actually, suddenly, if you're at the equinox, 21st of March, it doesn't creep up due east. Actually, it's much further to the south because it's been offset through the mountains. That's very important to actually include in the survey. So that's uh, one important kit that we're using as well. So you need all these tools taken into account these different effects. Okay, so that's, that's very interesting. And thank you for giving us a kind of good overview of what you do and the different tools that you might use. Uh, so thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you for that, Monique. Um, with some really interesting, if slightly off-the-wall stuff in there, like the overlaps between all the different disciplines and how useful, because it's kind of interesting that something which was created just as a stone for a particular purpose has become so useful to so many different communities. Yeah, I think that's quite a lot to the topic. And I actually, I met Dr. Daniel Brown because I went along to the astroarchaeology session not really knowing what it was, thinking maybe there might be dinosaurs or maybe not, um, and actually ended up staying for the whole thing because it was something so completely different to what I've ever encountered. But it does seem to be quite an active field. Presumably, nowadays, there are coherent record keeping of this kind of thing maybe the night sky will be astroarchaeology yeah one day. that's true one day if although given the organization of the podcast recordings on our hard drive that might be reasonably difficult um <laughs> hopefully one of our listeners can archive it for us <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure stuart's on it yeah that's probably true <laughs>
Okay, so our final interview is with a PhD student called Lars Mitnjertsen, and he's going to be talking about modelling Neptune's magnetosphere, and he's part of a very active group in this at Imperial College who are also responsible for magnetospheric modelling uh, using Cassini, and that's going around Saturn, and has looked at Titan and all its moons as well. Hi, welcome to the Jogcast. So it's Jack here, and I'm here with Lars Mitnjertsen. He's a uh, PhD student at Imperial College London. Hi, Lars. Hello. <laughs> um, so Lars looks at Neptune's magnetic uh, magnetosphere. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about what you've been doing in your first few years? Um, so basically, I am working on a global uh, MHD simulation, which is aimed at simulating planetary magnetospheres. And recently we've been looking at the Neptune's, um, Neptune's magnetosphere, which is uh, quite unique and highly variable over a daily basis. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting. And um, we have some uh, cool results, but, you know, there's always more work to be done. So, so I, I've recently believed that you've had a uh, press release on this subject. Is there any way for our listeners to see more about your project and what results you've got? Uh, sure. Well, on the um, NAM website under the press release section, there's a there's an article on uh, what we've been doing and a bit of a overview of uh, Neptune's magnetosphere. And there's also, um, as of this moment, there's a there's a video up on space.com about um, Neptune's badly behaved man- magnetic field. And so, could you kind of elaborate on what the magnetosphere is doing? in Neptune that's different to what we'd expect with the Earth, for example? In the Earth, the um, magnetic poles are roughly at the same place as uh, the geographic poles, which means that, you know, on a, um, as the Earth rotates, the poles don't actually move so much. Whereas in Neptune, it's almost, there's almost a 45-degree angle between them. So on a daily rotation, you go from a straight-up magnetic field to one that's parallel to um, uh, the solar wind, which interacts with it. And that sort of creates a very um, variable system on a daily basis. So is there any kind of aurora associated with this or that we can see? Well, that's the thing. Um, So there are obviously aurora on Earth. When Voyage 2 flew by, they didn't actually measure um, that many aurora. Um, And and I think that's mainly due to the fact that aurora are basically caused by um, open flux in the solar wind. And um, it's unsure whether Neptune, because of this huge rotation, can keep uh, the flux open and therefore causing an, an aurora like like at Earth. It, hopefully with our model we can we can see whether um, there is enough um, open flux which is created by a process called reconnection um, in order to create aurora and maybe explain why we don't see such aurora. So just for the listeners, uh, could you elaborate a bit on reconnection? So um, reconnection is um, when you have two uh, magnetic field lines which are anti-parallel. And they um, essentially they're they're in a high energy state, and they reorder themselves um, such that they sort of detach and attach to the uh, one next to it. So they become two sort of slingshot esque magnetic fields, which end up slingshotting plasma out um, at high energies. And that's how, um, for example, the magnetic field in the solar wind can connect with the um, magnetic field of Neptune or the Earth by this reconnection, because you have a change in uh, linkage between the magnetic fields. Thanks to me for that interview. I can't thank myself. Because <laughs> you can thank yourself. <laughs> so, as Lars was saying, Neptune's magnetosphere is very, very weird because it, it decides to, to face the sun. And the fact that we don't have auroras 
um, is suggestive of how variable this magnetosphere is. If it rotates too quickly, you don't have open field lines and the particles can't stream, and that's how we get aurora. It streams into the atmosphere, and then these cosmic rays interact with the gas in the atmosphere, and we end up seeing light, or the auroras. And we see them on Saturn, where we have hexagonal-shaped clouds, and these auroras are around hexagonal-shaped oh, really? clouds wow. in the poles. So it's, it's a good thing to go and have a look at on the internet, is these uh, weird weird shaped clouds that Saturn has in its poles. So that was our last interview from NAM. We will be looking forward to the next NAM, which is going to be in Nottingham in a couple of months' time, I think. Mm-hmm. And we will try and be a bit more prompt with <laughs> the interviews from that one. I am going to take this opportunity to plug our Jodcast survey, which was mentioned on the last main episode. So if you go to jodcast.net forward slash survey, then you will find a Jodcast listener survey where we're trying to find out as much as possible about who our listeners are and what they do and what they don't like about the Jodcast. Um, I also forgot to mention last time that there will actually be some prizes of some kind of Jodcast ephemera on offer if you supply us with your email address. So please go and and fill that survey out if you want to help us out or win some possibly worthless but nonetheless interesting goodies. Yeah. And thank you to those people who've already filled it out because I know we've already had quite a few replies. Yes, we've had about 20 so far. Uh, It's going pretty well. And as usual, if you'd like to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. And you can use Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. And you can also do it in the old school way by sending us post, uh, the address for which is on the website. So thanks to Dr. Daniel Brown, Professor Joe Dunkley, Professor Pedro Ferreira, Lars Minerson, Dr. Tom Melvin, Dr. Brooke Simmons, Becky Smithers, Dr. Matt Taylor and Dr. Carolyn Vilforth for the interviews. And thanks to the editors, Ian Harrison, Ben Shaw and Charles Walker. Thank you very much to the producer who was Monique Hanson. Until next time, Jodan. Jodan. Jodan.